Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Zena Chalich is the leader of learning technologies at Santa Sabina in God's own country of Strathfield in the inner west of Sydney in New South Wales. She is a learning experience designer. She's an international speaker. She's passionate about education and leadership and ed tech and creativity. She is known for creatively integrating emerging technology and design thinking into really cool learning experiences that kids, particularly girls, can gain access to a whole world of thinking about possibilities, especially in STEM. She's an ideal person for us to be talking to today about team creators. I can't wait. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again today. And I'm really, I'm always so interested when people from New South Wales continue to refer to, to their great state as God's country. Because from, from my recollection, I thought God's country was somewhere in the Middle East. But you know, that's just me. But clearly you guys have an inflated ego up there in New South Wales and believe that everything revolves around you. Us down here in Melbourne, we're just humble at being the most livable city in the world. Just humble uh, and, about that. And, and, the, and the humility is just shining through right now. <laughs> anyway, Phil, it is so exciting. Finally, we get to have the amazing Zena on our show. Someone who I've been fanboying for many, many years now and have huge admiration for. I love her honesty, I love her wit, I love her charm, but I also deeply, deeply love her, her deep commitment to the young people that we cherish so much in our schools. Zena, it's great to have you on our show and I'm gonna launch straight into the very first question. It's a question that we ask all of our listeners. And that question is, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Hi, Phil and Adriano. Thank you so much, firstly, for having me. And I kind of, I think I bring a bit of God's country to Sydney because I am from the Middle East. So I don't know about Phil and his Eastern Seaboard, <laughs> but um, thank you for having me. It's great to finally chat with you. So I think ever since I was a child, I've always been a teacher. I used to collect all my little cousins into rooms and teach them. Um, I used to do scripture school. When I went to high school, it was just a natural thing to be a teacher. Um, I love learning and I love exploring new ideas. So I guess for me, it was a natural fit to go into teaching. The thing I love about teaching is people, passions, projects, play, everything that, you know, we love about education. Yeah, so I started teaching because I've got a passion for people, passion for life learning. And I love finding what makes people tick and what they're passionate about and then helping them unleash their full potential in whatever area that is. Um, I've always been a people person. I love collaborating and connecting with people. And I think with the evolving landscape of education, every day is new, every day is different. And I, um, I just love the challenge of um, what I can bring to my various roles. I love disrupting things, asking why, changing things, challenging the status quo, always looking for new ways to do things and do things differently and better. So I guess education is a great place for me to play because it ties in all my passions for people and projects and life learning. One of the really interesting things about what you're sharing with us today, Zena, is that you, with a handful of other educators, 
have been the pioneers mm -hmm. of Aussie Ed. And it's been a, an amazing kind of vehicle uh, on, on the Twitter space to actually not only celebrate teachers and celebrate education, but in many ways disrupt the norm and provide a bit of an insight to other educators about what's possible, mm. uh, particularly in this new world. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that concept came about and talk a little bit about the work of uh, the Aussie Ed Chat? So I guess for me on a personal level, before Aussie Ed came to fruition, I was in a place of isolation in my context, my school context. I had big ideas and thoughts about school and learning and I was incredibly frustrated with where I was as a teacher, not given access to professional learning or support to expand on these ideas. You could say it was like an, you know, an island of innovation because I was literally by myself. I didn't have connections and it was quite lonely. I was actually looking to leave education because I was seeing people in the real world connecting on projects, collaborating, using technology to really amplify what they were doing. And I just felt schools were so institutionalized and I just, I could see what was happening outside, but didn't know how to bring that into the school context. So Brett Salakis was actually one of the parents at my school that I was teaching at. And he was one of the parents at a huge meeting where we introduced flexible learning spaces, mm -hmm. um, design thinking, open curriculum. And Basically, I was the poster girl standing there trying to, not trying to convince, but pitching to the parents the concepts behind flexible learning, open-ended learning inquiry. And Brett stood up and said, in my workplace, this is what we did. I didn't know he was a teacher at the time. Anyway, we connected. I ended up teaching his daughter. And then we stayed connected for a while. We did great things at that school with the support of Brett and other parents and a great principal. And then a couple of months later, um, that principal actually got me onto Twitter. He was like, you need to connect with like-minded people because we just thought what we were doing was not part of a network or we didn't know how deep our impact could be. So um, he said, jump on Twitter. I didn't know what to do on Twitter. And then I had um, Tom Barrett get me my first hundred followers. And then I started connecting with like-minded people, having these conversations on the go at any time of the day. Anyway, connected with Brett at a Google meet. We were presenting good practice in technology, hearing and seeing from each other, different um, schools in Sydney Catholic system. And we were like, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Why aren't we talking more often? Why aren't we connecting? Brett started the actual hashtag at a staff meeting that he was running. And it was about five or six teachers sitting in a circle. And they were using the hashtag, but they didn't quite know the global impact of that conversation or that hashtag. It was just a conversation online in real life. Anyway, we talked about taking this conversation online globally. We picked Sunday night, shared a few questions, started tweeting them out. We connected, other people joined in, and we just started this organic conversation every Sunday night. But you know, now it's evolved to a global conversation 24-7. It's kind of an in for Australian education for anyone on Twitter. And I think the power behind that is that it's driven by the people, by the users. It's only as relevant and robust as the people who engage with it. So even though we shape the conversation or we facilitate space for these, it's the people that drive it and you know it's been happening now for seven years so it's changed in terms of context in terms of diversity in terms of perspective we love edtech we love disruption we love continuous learning but we're not limited to those themes so i think we cast a broad net you know we have academics we have researchers we have teachers beginning teachers it, it flattens that hierarchy of professional learning and leadership you don't have to wait for someone 
to direct your learning. You have ownership over it, self-directed. It, um, it builds self-efficacy for our teachers. So I think what we want for our students, Aussie Ed provides for teachers that autonomy over their own learning and a chance to do that on a global scale that might not otherwise happen in our own little school. I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad, Dina, that you chose to stay in education uh, <laughs> after sharing what you just shared there. Because one of the things that we often talk about with many of our game changes is this notion of finding your tribe, you know, and, and working within that particular space. For that to be effective, we actually, actually have to have an openness to the other. And so much of really good teaching is about the social exchange between that, that goes on between ourselves as, as colleagues, but also between, of course, student and teacher and the character apprenticeship that's fostered uh, in, the, in the power of that relationship. Sure. I, want, I want to talk about then how has this has now moved into this kind of organic place, as you said, where, where it's flattened the model and, and you've got academics in the space, you've got school leaders, you've got graduate teachers, you've got aspirant teachers, You've got people involved in education and everyone is on an equal playing field. Mm -hmm. When you work within school settings, how would you go about cultivating that type of inclusive approach to a team orientated collaboration? That's a challenge in itself, I think. I think if you ask every um, middle leader or school leader how they cultivate that organic conversation and culture of learning and transformation, it's, it's it's hard. It's challenging. I don't know if anyone is able to do it, but I guess from my experience, I mean, what works on Twitter or social media or any professional learning network is that you have autonomy. It's self-directed. People pursue conversations and topics that they're interested in. They're engaging in authentic self-reflection. You can be yourself. It's personalized. There's no constraints of time, space, compliance. I mean, we do have a code of conduct on there, but Generally speaking, no one's monitoring or mandating your conversations. How do we create that culture in schools? How do we create that time and space for those honest, open, robust conversations where you can be hard on ideas and soft on people? I think it takes really strong, courageous, competent leadership for people to open that space, to lead it, to model it. You can't have that top-down approach. You really have to seek the collective wisdom of the people within know your staff, know how to lead them and create spaces for those conversations. So, I mean, we look, look the way we do it with our students. We find out what their interests are, what their passions are, and we start from there. So I think it all starts with effective leadership mm -hmm. that's open and responsive. Um, leadership that's empathetic in terms of knowing their people, how to start those conversations. Offering differentiated professional learning is an easy way. I mean, we have the standards there to guide us. So there are a lot of frameworks that we can be using to um, navigate this. But then again, again, it goes back to the people as well. For some people, teaching is just a job. They'll show up, they'll do what they have to do. They'll do what's asked of them. So I guess you need to tap into those champion teachers in your school that can transform and lead culture. You know, maybe start with action research projects showcasing events maybe have your teachers lead different initiatives but really know them know them really well and create the space for those um i'm not saying it's easy <laughs> you know we bring different diverse mm -hmm. perspectives and even competencies and confidence a lot of teachers don't want to read or engage or transform their learning or reflect on their practice they're kind of happy to do what they do and go home every day but um that disrupting that mindset and creating space i think Zena, there's so much in, in what you're talking about right now that we could sort of teach apart. 
I want to pick up on uh, on a couple of things in a series of questions, if I can. The first is about collaboration. In our profession, I think we struggle to differentiate between or to sort out sort out the difference between collegiality, which is about parallel professionalism, and collaboration, which is about shared professionalism. Why should teachers collaborate with each other? <laughs> One, because they're told they have to, right? I always tweet about this. I talk about cooperation or compliance versus collaboration. I think there's this notion that if you're all sitting on the same Google Doc typing together that you're you know, actively collaborating. I think in its true sense, collaboration has an exchange of energy and ideas and it's got a shared and distributed vibe of the doing and the thinking and the ideating. Teachers who have something to give or teachers who have input on a particular situation or topic or project would naturally want to collaborate. I often find the people who aren't invested in the idea or initiative that don't want to collaborate. So I think the question we need to ask is who are we bringing to the table to collaborate? Is it forced compliance and cooperation? Should everyone be in that room at that particular table? Are we forcing it? How do we truly find out who needs to be in that space to organically collaborate? And who are the people that are just taking notes or typing and, you know, taking up the space? So I think there has to be a genuine intellectual curiosity for people to want to be in the space or for collaboration. Um, and I think we need to create those opportunities for all teachers to do that, but not force it. Yeah, which is very interesting of itself, isn't it? So if I was to talk to uh, someone like, Michael Day about the journey that teachers go on and they start off in a state of unconscious incompetence which requires them to go to conscious incompetence which then they've got to get to conscious competence all right and it's just a reality around that you know uh, and and that phase of going from being unconsciously to consciously incompetent is a very threatening stage it really creates vulnerability around there and when you get people who need to build a new set of competencies, for example, it could be in digital technologies or it could be in collaboration or it could be in leadership. How do we support people best at that vulnerable stage? I think the first thing is to be vulnerable ourselves, to be open, to car park our assumptions and beliefs about this person or this initiative. I think building trust and confidence when people see you um, not holding judgment and being authentic, that builds credibility and they have trust and confidence in your leadership. So I think relationships are at the core of any change. You need to know your people, know their values, know their beliefs and really get to know them at a human level, not just their status or their years of experience. So I think that human connection first and foremost and I think then secondly is their passions. Like we do it with our students. And when I'm working with teachers, I'm constantly thinking, what are their triggers? When, what, what makes their eyes light up? What do they talk about endlessly? It could be anything. And I think passionate people will bring more of themselves to any change that they might um, be part of, whether it's professionally or personally. I think there's, we always cut up the personal and professional. We keep them side by side. But I think now with the whole way the world's working and you know, 24-7 global connectedness, we bring our whole selves to everything that we do and say. So I like to get to know people for themselves and then see where 
their level of confidence is at, what are their ambitions? Like I could tell them what they need to be doing and where I want to see them. But like you said, it's got to come from them. So I need to meet them where they're at and co-construct a pathway that, you know, is comfortable yet challenging at their sweet spot for learning and then provide the skills and the tools um, to help develop that mindset to change. And look, it takes time. Some people come to you magnetically wanting to change, whether it's into technology or anything else. And then there's others that you just need to sit with a little bit longer and guide them along their own journey. But really, it comes from them. The change comes from them. Okay. So, so I'm loving what you're saying. I'm going to give you an opportunity now. I'm going to give you an opportunity to Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil. And we're going to combine your passion with my vulnerability. I just don't get this Twitter thing. I just don't get it. Like... <laughs> Like Adriano is a card-carrying member of the Twitterati and he just knows it and loves it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. got a five-star rating in my books. There oh, it is. Really kind of you know what? No, you're a diamond. You are a diamond. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Okay. There it is. Uh, well, we've, 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 we've now got it. Diamond Adriano <laughs> de Prato. There yes, it is. There's the help me, help me understand where the benefit is for an old chalky like me in engaging in this world of Twitter? Look, first of all, we, we know, let's get rid of the whole age thing because that's nothing but a number for, you know, profiling your medical status and age. So for me, the way I explain it is it's like this global international staff room that's not limited by geography, time, expertise, age, cultural background, or even languages. So all these barriers that we usually have within schools, they're brought right down on Twitter. That's first and foremost. It's 24 seven, it's open. It's like a lounge or a cafe that's always open and available. There's streams of information, there's loads of conversation, there's resources, there's discussions and debates. Twitter is what you make of it. If you want to go there just for resources, you can do that and not interact with a single person. If you wanna be there for emerging trends and news articles and, um, publications and notification you, you can do that as well but the beauty of twitter is that the professional learning network which aussie ed sits in is created by the people so you're there for discussion for debate i mean recently with all the lockdown i know we've been reaching out to our melbourne tweets it's been a place to um vent it's been a place to um support and nurture one of one our, our well-being and collegiality in that space so it can be anything you want it to be. But for me, it's a space for like-minded people to connect, sometimes to collaborate, sometimes to debate and discuss. Sometimes it's to think big. Those conversations, Twitter offers a space for conversations that you might not be able to have in your professional workspace for different reasons. I like the accessibility of it and it's personalized. You can add what you want to it, take what you want from it, but it's an opportunity for you to share your thoughts, your ideas, your insights. And it's also a place for reflection. Now I know people blog and people do reflection in different ways. I find the micro blogging, that short, sharp tweet for me, it really crystallizes what I'm trying to say, how I'm trying to say it. So it takes away all the fluff. It takes away. And look, Adriana can tell you sometimes my tweets, can be quite, what's the word, Adriano? Insert the word for me. <laughs> uh, earnest. 
earnest. Yes, I like that. I was going to say abrupt. <laughs> Let me just write that down. Earnest. My, yeah. I'm going to change my Twitter, earnest tweeter. Yes, so yeah. I think you, you can have those honest and robust conversations. And I think um, the first time you're on there, sometimes people get quite offended by what you say and how you say things. But over time, you, you know, there's, there's a code of conduct that, you know, you're being hard on IGs, but we're being soft on people. And I just love the diversity and different perspectives of conversations and thoughts. Like if you asked me five or six years ago what my thoughts were about teaching and learning, they've, disrupt, they've been disrupted incredibly just by conversations with people from different backgrounds and different contexts that I would never have been exposed to. So it's a global, international staff room that you get to choose who your colleagues are every day. Yeah, it's really interesting, uh, this conversation, Zena, because obviously social media period is a phenomenon that I have been an early subscriber to. And I have really enjoyed the opportunities that are born from the connectivity that's created through platforms like LinkedIn or like Twitter and so on. Interestingly, though, I've always used those platforms. Yes, every now and then I share a nice meal or I share uh, how well my football team is going or how well they're not going. But predominantly, <laughs> I've always used that space to advocate for education. And I've always mm -hmm. used that space to advocate for my for colleagues. And I try and lift people up. And, and there isn't a week that I don't go by where I'm not highlighting someone or some program or something. My challenge in that particular space, though, Zena, but, and particularly some in Catholic education, see the use of that platform as purely self-promotion. <laughs> and, and I've been accused uh, many, many times by people who really don't understand the profoundness of the connectivity and the profoundness of the growth that occurs in a space of microblogging. They just simply see it as personal branding. What can I do, Zena, to change that perception around what, what people might might believe is less about sharing and collaboration and more about self. As a fellow educator, hot lister, <laughs> can I start <laughs> with that? <laughs> Look, I think um, I, I know wholeheartedly what you're, um, what you're saying. I personally have been told by people in different contexts and truthfully, and as I've always been truthful, oh, you got the job because of your Twitter profile. Um, you know, you're seen for this, you're known for that. Um, we do great things, but it's your tweets that get noticed. And I just, for me, the purpose of being on Twitter, like you just said, is to connect and collaborate. And yes, to celebrate, to celebrate the things that I'm part of, but also to lift other people. Because when one of us, I know it sounds so cliche, but bear with me, when one of us thrives, we all do. So if mm -hmm. I'm seeing you doing awesome things, that motivates and inspires me to have a go and to connect and to um, join in on that. I want in on that. You know, it's extreme FOMO. So for me, that's a space to do that where, you know, you, you might have opportunities in your school context, but that never happens when no one sees you, no one hears you, no one acknowledges you or no one actually values your contribution and what you are doing. But on Twitter, like I said, you can connect with like-minded people to do that. So at first I used to take it really personally about people who mm -hmm. think it's about being on brand. It's about self-promotion. I think in everything we do, we're always on show. I think everything we tweet, everything we talk, every, even the way we present ourselves in professional and our personal life, we do have our personal brand, whether we, we work on it or not. You know, people can describe you as having an integrity and being professional, being competent. I don't, I don't see why it should be any different on social media. I guess 
when people talk about branding, for me, it's like, well, if I'm going to be on there, if I'm going to be myself, then I want to control the narrative and the story that I put out there about myself. So I share what I will share personally or professionally. And I think people just need to make space for that. I think if we don't share our own successes and stories and tell our stories, then how do we inspire and motivate other people? There's so much of what you're talking about is about this very deep understanding about what motivates people and how to bring people together and, and how to draw people together as a team. You know, the, the research that we've done around the notion of a team creator, you have to know how to build and work well within teams. You've got to recognise common humanity and the work that needs to be done to enhance it. You've got to be deeply grounded in relationality, um, which you have to understand about community. You've got to create positive interactions between individuals and groups. You've got to try and build a community of inquiry and practice. That means we've got to ask questions of each other and, and, and show what we do. We've got to be disposed towards achieving shared goals for success and wellness. And you've got to be able to reflect on the collaboration between being relational and the relationships you do and the output that comes from that. You talked about thriving a little bit earlier, and I think thriving is deeply connected to the notion of being a team creator. Why do we need to work harder at building teams and building an understanding of teams to help our students and our colleagues and our families and our school communities to thrive? I think we we can't, we don't go far alone. We go further together. And I think when one of us thrives, we all thrive. So I think it's really important when shaping teams or leading collaborators that we bring people along, we acknowledge, we affirm. I mean, when people feel acknowledged and affirmed and seen and heard and valued, they have purpose in their work and they bring their whole, whole selves to whatever they're doing. If we don't invite that, if we don't you know, inspire that and welcome it and celebrate it, then we're not going to get the best out of people. An idea just remains an idea. It doesn't get actioned. So I think whether we do it within each other or whether the person who's leading does it, I think it's really important to have that trust and confidence and purpose. People need to have purpose in what they're doing. It's really hard to pour from an empty cup. So if people don't feel like they can contribute and are successful, then it's really hard to have a shared vision. I mean, we can put all the mission statements out there in the world, but unless we're actually tapping into people's purpose for what they're doing, then we really can't achieve anything alone. I want to shift our conversation now into some of your work uh, and share with our listeners uh, uh, the success in that particular space and, and why it's important to you. You often speak at conferences about ways to inspire the next generation of creative, kind of entrepreneurial and digital women, especially through the vehicle of STEM. How can we better empower more women in, the, in that particular space going forward? I think first and foremost, we need to acknowledge the issues around the underrepresentation of girls and women in STEM. Often when we launch initiatives or programs, people do it because it's trendy or it's in vogue or it's the buzzword in education. I think we have to look at the future and like in the future workforce right now, we know that women are underrepresented in um, those industries. We also know that there's a pay gap the World Economic Forum during International Women's Day highlighted a gender report and it just showed huge discrepancies between gender parity and pay. And I think it's going to take like 99.5 years before women earn the same as men. So I think for me, I think, well, how do we disrupt that? How do we change that? We can't wait for these girls to become women later. It needs to start now and it needs to start even as young as the primary years. So for me, I just think, 
how do we do that? How do we empower and enable these girls and women to step out of their comfort zones, to know what they don't know and create those pathways? So I think, I mean, STEM's one vehicle, STEM, STEAM, it's, I think it's one vehicle in terms of couching what we know in a different way. The world's problems don't sit in isolation. They're generally couched in STEM. So I think that's a great vehicle to start. The projects that we initiate are driven by student passion and interest. I think to get girls interested in their learning and girls and boys, we've got to tap into their interests and their passions. So whenever we're creating these opportunities, it's always starting from within, what the students are interested in, what they're curious about. And then we design learning experiences that reflect that of the workforce. So we use the design thinking approach. We start with empathy. Um, we get the students to look at their own lives and the lives of others. We engage in data. Um, we engage in different ways of knowing the real issues. And the thing is with this, we try to mirror the, um, the future workplaces in terms of authenticity. We give them real problems that they're invested in for them to solve. And I think we then leverage technology to amplify their voices and their ideas. And I think the success of our projects has been connecting girls with our mentors mm -hmm. and industry experts. I know they say, you know, you can't be what you can't see. But for our girls, it's so important for them to meet and feel and hear something real and visible and tangible of women who've gone before them and to really map out a true pathway for them. Otherwise, they're just ideas and dream big concepts that the girls just can't connect to. Zena, I'm thinking right now that there's so much in what you're saying. I really want to know what's one thing you're working on with the girls at Santa right now that you're learning from things to do things not to do etc etc take it take us to the grassroots okay take us to the chalk face sure so at the moment um we've engaged in the enterprising girls academy so it looks about entrepreneurial skills for the future very similar to the design thinking approach where you know the children um, the students are identifying real world problems connecting with industry experts the surprising thing i'm like always learning from our students of this aha moments all the time when i ask them to describe what an entrepreneur looked like and said and they'll be adrian they look like your um holiday photo sitting at <laughs> they just drew someone at the beach sitting with their laptop <laughs> Um, making okay. deals, saying yes, no, buy, sell. They said that they had designer handbags, that they were, weren't working in a traditional office. None of them actually spoke about the challenges involved with being an entrepreneur. And it was so interesting, especially the girls. We talked about entrepreneurship, what they thought it was and what it could be. And then we talked about um, what their parents do. And more than half of the students in my class had parents who were business owners. Oh, my mum bakes cakes or my mum does this. And I was, they couldn't make the connection between the entrepreneurial skills and being a business owner. I think, you know, there's this fantasy of the entrepreneur, work wherever you want, you know, choose your own hours, but they don't actually see the risk taking and the fatigue and the grit and the hard work that goes into bringing your idea to life. The other thing as well that really caught my eye was um, the girls had to come up with a social enterprise and we worked through different online modules at their own pace. And it got to the point where they had to pick something they were passionate about um, and come up with a solution to solve a problem. This was done over a few, um, a few sessions. And there was one girl that said, oh, I love cakes. I love pastry. I love desserts. I love this, this and that. And she goes, but I don't think I can make it into a business. And I was like, what do you mean? And they, they didn't have the connection. So I showed her things like, you know, the, the 
teacher, um, Catherine Sabbath, who makes those amazing cakes. We looked at Adriano Zumbo. I was like, these are people who are passionate about cakes and pastries and they've shared their talents with other people and they're making a living out of it. And she just had an aha moment. She goes, oh, so I can do what I love every day and get paid for it. And I was like, mm. yes, that's our end game, right? We want to pursue them to pursue their passions and interests. And yeah, if you can work for it, great. So I think we need to really car park bias and assumptions and stereotypes we have about what we think students know. And we really need to connect with them at their level, start with them um, and build whole new ideas about that. So for my girls, they're interviewing their mums. They're interviewing people that they know about business and they're coming back going, oh, miss, it's really hard. Sometimes they have no money in the bank. They're doing crazy hours. So learning from them what, how they perceive things in their reality and then making changes accordingly has been my biggest learning so far. And just, you know what, the other thing, the concept of money, <laughs> financial literacy, <laughs> that's something that we're working on. I think there's an assumption that kids know how to add and subtract so they know how to do that. But yeah, that, that, that's some exciting things that we're currently working on at Centre. So much of what you're sharing around this notion of enterprise thinking is about the adult taking a bit of a leap of faith mm -hmm. and trusting in that kind of dynamic collaboration of, of that self-determined space of the young person. I mean, it's a true asynchronous kind of learning uh, framework that, that you're advocating there. That doesn't mean, and it's really important for our listeners to understand, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for direct instruction. That doesn't mean that there isn't a place for knowledge and skill development and an acquisition of that knowledge and skill. What I'm hearing you say so profoundly is that we co-collaborate to construct that knowledge and skill, and then we assist them in making the transfer into real world contexts and, and, and really helping them understand how it can be placed for them to thrive going forward. That links beautifully to this, this thing that during COVID-19, all of us in education have had to pivot to being flexible and open to the idea of digital technologies and using technology as this great leverage to connect to learning and of course try and maintain some sense of community and some sense of uh, building wellness into everything that we do. What do you see being born out of all that experience, in particular us in Victoria here, you know, I mean, we're living it right now, like we haven't actually come out of it. You know, our, our whole learning paradigm is online. So what do you see going forward is going to be the increasing role of digital technologies in shaping a framework and a structure to deliver the whole of learning? That's a really good question. I think at the start of lockdowns, you know, we saw emergency remote teaching and learning. And I think we just leveraged whatever technology was available and accessible. What I did notice was the rapid upskilling the strong sense of urgency and need. And I think that hasn't happened in a long time in education. So for me, that, that's been the most exciting time of my whole career, seeing people asking how might we use technology to transform learning and I need to do it within the next few hours, Zena, help me. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it just goes to show that we have it within us to transform teaching and learning when there's a strong sense of urgency. So I love that collective approach to having to disrupt what we do because we have to, we had no choice. So I think it really showed the potential of teachers to change their practices. People say change takes time and that, you know, there has to be a methodical, well thought out process when really, I mean, I offer differentiated personalised professional learning for teachers on the go as needed. So I think teachers are adaptable, like our students are adaptable. I think first and foremost, we need to acknowledge and accept that and know that we have that. The second thing is we have access to great digital technology. 
I know there's a digital divide. I know, you know, equity issues and um, infrastructure isn't equal in all spaces and context is very important. I, I acknowledge that, but that's an area that I think, well, hang on, all these big ed tech giants came to help, all these private sectors came up, you know, all these companies were giving free resources or sharing things online. And it just made me think, well, what if they came together in a strategic way to build these online spaces or create infrastructure for those who don't have it to really transform education? So that's another piece that I thought, hang on, the potential's there, the willingness to help us is there. They're not as disconnected as we think. So we've got the teachers, We've got the, and I think the learning, I think, you know, when we talk about synchronous, synchronous learning, we've trialed it, we've seen it. We can trust our students to take ownership of their learning. It can be self-paced, it can be personalised, we can leverage other resources that are already on there. We don't have to make and create everything. And then the other thing that I noticed was globalisation as well, like teachers from all over the world were sharing ideas and lesson plans and resources and courses. We were no longer just sitting in our own schools and silos, in our, even in our Australian context private, public, it didn't matter, you were an educator, we wanted to get the best out of our students. So when I look at all of these factors together, I just think, well, we can have this hybrid model of schooling where it's not limited to time or space or the teacher sitting at the front of the room. And I just think we need to capitalise on this. We need to really jump on what's happened and build on it because our students have shown us that they want it and they can cope with it. And our teachers have shown us that they can lead it from within as well. So it's just a matter of the private sector, educational systems at a higher level, and also the government coming together to have a conversation about a new norm for schooling. And I think it's, um, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Sina, your, um, your knowledge is profound. Your wisdom is deeply insightful and your... Um, you cracked me up as well too, all at the same time. <laughs> Earlier in this conversation, you talked about, in fact, right at the start of this conversation, you talked about play and the importance of play. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you 144 char- characters to answer <laughs> this question in, okay? Where's my phone? <laughs> <laughs> what is the game that educators should play and what are the rules of the game? Oh, what game they should play? That's a really, really good question. Did you just think of that one then? <laughs> yeah, just while we were talking about because you've inspired me. You know. Okay, all right. I think first and foremost, you need to know the rules of the game. Know them really, really well. When I say rules, I'm talking about pedagogy, policies and people and then break them. Break the rules that don't seem right or fair and create new ones with like-minded people who also don't want to play by the rules. That's my answer. That's brilliant. <laughs> there you go. Zena <laughs> <laughs> Challenge, that's um, hashtag education made possible. That's what, well, that's what you are. You, you, you know, you've, you've been terrific in this conversation. We're so appreciative of your, um, your generosity and your frankness and your openness. Um, I'm really looking forward to having another chat with you again at some time. And, uh, and maybe, you can, uh, maybe you can interview us. Absolutely. Can I, can I be down for a special game changer? I want to interview both of you. I want to do a podcast. Yeah, okay, done, done. Yep. We're going to call it, it's, it's like that flipping, flipping the system, mm-hmm. right? So we're going, to be, we're going to be flipping the game changers. Excellent. Can you make a little, one of those little logos with my face and my hair? Uh, the the logo will only be your face. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> there it is.
There it is. <laughs> Zena Chalich, you are truly a team creator and you're a terrific person and you're a fantastic teacher and it's been a privilege learning from you today. Thanks so much for coming on Game Changers. Thank you so much for giving me this space. And, and I'll just finish off by also saying, look, it's, uh, I, I'm delighted that uh, you're on this particular podcast in Series 4 with our theme of Are You Thriving in This World? I love the fact that you spoke about our responsibility about bringing our whole selves to everything that we do. And we're so wrapped, Phil and I, that you were able to bring so much of yourself today to our listeners from your knowledge and your wisdom. Uh, Zena, we wish you well going forward and uh, we look forward to you interviewing us in the near future. Can't wait. Thank you so much. <laughs> the Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.